Well, this morning we uh, continue our uh, sermon uh, series entitled Celebrating Triumph Over Trouble Through Trust in God. Uh, this is a study of the Psalms of the Degrees, which are Psalms 120 through 134. Today we come to Psalm 122, which I've entitled The Triumph of Trust in God. As we did with the previous Psalms, we will begin by wedding Psalm 122 to the historical background. Uh, I hope you picked up a, a copy of the sermon notes, and what I want you to see first is that the first two paragraphs in your sermon notes summarize the interpretive position I have taken uh, concerning these psalms, which I devoted the entire first lesson to. So uh, look at those uh, first two paragraphs, which again is just a summary of the uh, uh, position we're taking on these psalms. The Psalms of the Degrees are 15 songs, uh, we believe, compiled by King Hezekiah to celebrate the miracle of the degrees which God performed to guarantee the fulfillment of three promises. First, to heal Hezekiah from a terminal disease. Second, to add 15 years to his life. And third, to deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. The next paragraph there, the Psalms of the Degrees are arranged in five groups of three psalms. In each trio, the first psalm speaks of trouble. The second psalm, trust in God. And the third psalm, triumph. Thus, by the way, the title for the series, Celebrating Triumph Over Trouble Through Trust in God. Now, going back to the notes, Psalm 122 is the last psalm in the first trio. Remember, Psalm 120 referred to the trouble of the Assyrian invasion. Psalm 122, or 121 referred to the trust Hezekiah placed in God. That was our focus last Sunday. And then here today, Psalm 122, we will see, refers to the triumph God gave. Now, just pause right there for a moment. In our first lesson, we learned that four of the 15 Psalms of the Degrees were written by King David. Psalm 122, our psalm for today, being one of those four. Uh, one of these psalms was written by David's son, King Solomon, while the remaining ten were written by Hezekiah, which he refers to as my songs in Isaiah 3820. And again, we've seen that in previous lessons. And we noted that Hezekiah chose 15 psalms. Why? To commemorate the 15 years added to his life. And the 10 he wrote, he wrote to commemorate the 10 degrees that the shadow went back when God performed the miracle of the degrees on the sundial of Ahaz. Now return to your notes to that third paragraph, which sort of sets us on our look at Psalm 122. Psalm 122 begins and ends, as we're going to see, with a reference 
to the house of the Lord. And is a song about seeking the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem and doing so for the sake of the house of the Lord. Psalm 122 was the perfect psalm for Hezekiah to select in celebrating God's deliverance from the Assyrians when you consider there never was a king in Judah with greater zeal for the house of the Lord and worship of God. I mean, literally, there was never a single king in Judah's history that had the zeal like Hezekiah did for the house of the Lord and worship. Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, an evil idolater, we read, closed the doors of the house of the Lord. Hezekiah's very first act as king was he opened the doors to the house of the Lord and repaired them. The greatest priority of King Hezekiah's administration was not economic or foreign policies. Not that he didn't have economic and foreign policies, but that was not his priority. The priority was for the nation to return to heartfelt worship of God. Hezekiah's restoration of the temple and renewed worship services occupies three whole chapters in Second Chronicles. Chapters 29, 30, and 31. Now look at that fourth paragraph in your sermon notes, right about the middle of that first page. Hezekiah learned a God worthy of worship is a God worthy of trust. Therefore, when trouble came, Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord to place his confidence in God. In response to the Assyrians' intimidation to surrender or be destroyed... We read, and when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and where did he go? He entered the house of the Lord, of course, to seek God. When he received the letter from the king of the Assyrians, mocking God, we read, then Hezekiah took the letter, and where did he go? He went to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. After being healed, Hezekiah proclaimed, so we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life. Where? At the house of the Lord. And then Hezekiah's reign can be summed up in that next reference from 2 Chronicles 31, 21. And every work which he began in the service of the house of the Lord, or house of God, in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Hezekiah understood, that last paragraph now, Hezekiah understood the first duty and only true safety of Jerusalem was found in its relationship to the God of the temple, the God who dwelt in that temple in the house of the Lord. As God said through Samuel, those who honor me, I will honor. Never was there a greater demonstration of this than when in response to Hezekiah's prayer, God sent the angel of the Lord who killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, causing the Assyrians to retreat to their homeland in defeat. Now last week we looked at Hezekiah's prayer, but I want to look at it again. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 19. 
You remember the Assyrian king sends Hezekiah this letter, literally mocking God, literally scorning God, and ridiculing Hezekiah's trust in God. And remember, this is a military power that in no way could little Judah withstand. They were in about as dire straits as we're going to see that anyone could possibly be in. Uh, matter of fact, you'll remember at this point in the story, uh, Sennacherib and the Assyrians have literally conquered every city in Judah. Jerusalem is the only holdout, it's the only one left to subdue. Now, look at the, uh, his prayer, uh, 2 Kings chapter 19, it's in verses 14 through 20. Verse 14 says, Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And he went up, where to? To the house of the Lord, and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, and what a prayer, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Verse 16, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. And have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand. Why? That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. That's his prayer. Now look at God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer once again in 2 Kings chapter 19. Let's begin at verse 32. This is God's response. Hezekiah prays in this dire crisis. And God's response, 19 verse 32, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield. Or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return. And he shall not not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night. So you have Hezekiah praying. He gets God's response that very night. God didn't waste any time at all in answering his prayer. It says, that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, those were two of his sons, killed him with the sword. Now, 
Go back to your sermon notes and look at that last sentence on the first page of your sermon notes. That very last sentence on the first page of your sermon notes. Hezekiah uses Psalm 122, a psalm originally written by David, but he takes it and he uses it to celebrate and worship God for his deliverance of Jerusalem and to invoke continued prayer for the spiritual welfare of the city. So now please open your Bibles to Psalm 122 and let's look at it. Psalm 122 This psalm again that Hezekiah borrowed from David to celebrate the triumph that God gave them at this time and to invoke continued prayer for the city. Psalm of uh, nine verses. Remember I mentioned the opening verse, verse 1, and the closing verse, verse 9, both mention the house of the Lord. Verse 1, I was glad. When they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord. Talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. An ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there, in Jerusalem, thrones were set for judgment. The thrones of the house of David. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. Why? For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, let me raise a question. Can you even begin to imagine the worship celebration that took place inside Jerusalem as they praised and thanked God for supernaturally delivering them from the dreaded Assyrians? Can we even begin to imagine that? I don't think so. Now, but let's let's try to the best we can. Imagine if you were a resident of the city of Jerusalem, you and your family at this time, and uh, you're closed up in there by the uh, dreaded Assyrian army, the greatest military force on planet Earth at that time, the greatest empire uh, in the history of planet Earth up to that point. And as I mentioned in an earlier message, you could make the argument And I believe you would win the argument that in all of history, in all of human history, there was never a more savage, sadistic, or evil empire as Assyria. Typically, if a city or nation did not resist the Assyrians, they they would just automatically throw in the towel and unconditionally surrender. The Assyrians would enslave that people. And then they would send them to some faraway land uh, to live the rest of their lives uh, as slaves, uh, as servants. But folks, woe to that city. Woe to that nation that had the gall to put up a fight and to try to resist them. 
the Syrians, their attitude was, we are about to make an example of them. And we're going to make a brutal example of them so that we discourage future foes from resisting us. Now, from the Assyrians' own historical records, we are given innumerable accounts of how brutal they were on those occasions. And let me just give you several examples. And I'm not going to give you the worst that I could have, I could have chosen. But this will give you a taste. And why do I read this? It's not easy to read. I read this because, again, I want you to imagine you being a resident in Jerusalem. And you know you don't have the military might to resist them. You know the moment they begin the siege that they're going to overthrow the city unless there is a miraculous intervention of God. And so they, they knew the reputation of the Assyrians. Here's just a couple of examples. This was a city that had resisted. He said, and this is the king writing. He says, I flayed. He's talking about skinning alive as many nobles had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. Here's another example. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built there with a tower before their city. Remember I told you one of their favorite pastimes was to decapitate the heads of their foes and build these massive pyramids of skulls. He goes on and says, I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Another example, in strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I failed 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off of some their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. And then one last example, I cut their throats like lambs. And listen to the, the callousness of this next sentence. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. When the Assyrians came up against Jerusalem, those again trapped inside those walls, they knew all of that. They also knew something else. They knew that Hezekiah was fully committed not to surrender. That Hezekiah was putting his trust in the Lord for deliverance. That Hezekiah was committed to resist and so they knew if God did not deliver them, that their families, their children would suffer horrific abuse, torture, and the cruelest of deaths. So I ask again, can you even begin to imagine the worship celebration that took place inside Jerusalem as they praised and thanked God for the, God's supernatural deliverance over the dreaded Assyrians. You know, in Jewish history, this deliverance from the Assyrians literally ranks right up there with the exodus from uh, Egypt when God destroyed the army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. Now, in order to give us maybe some idea 
or taste of the celebration. Uh, uh, we're told in 2 Chronicles 30 that after Hezekiah repaired the temple and restored worship of God, they celebrated their first Passover, which took place very early in Hezekiah's reign, which would have been years before the Assyrian invasion. But it gives us a magnificent description of this celebration of the Passover. And I think this is a great example, just to give you a taste, what it must have been, been like after God delivered them from the Assyrians, and they threw this magnificent worship service to uh, praise him. Uh, this is how the celebration is described in 2 Chronicles 30. Listen. So the sons of Israel present in Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, for seven days. And they celebrated with great joy. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day after day with loud instruments to the Lord. Then the whole assembly deci decided to celebrate the feast another seven days, something the law did not require. In other words, they did the required seven days, did it with great joy, loud instruments, praise, singing, worship. And they were so happy in the Lord, they said, let's just do this for another seven days. And they, and they take off. So they celebrated the seven days with joy, those additional uh, seven days. All the assembly of Judah rejoiced with the priests and the Levites and all the assembly that came from Jerusalem. So there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Then the Levitical priest arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holding dwelling place to heaven. So again, I ask one last time, one last time, can you even imagine? the worship service they had to have thrown once they were delivered from the Syrians. Look now at Psalm 122 in light of what I just shared, and I think we'll get a taste of what they praise God for. Again, Psalm 122, I've entitled The Triumph of Trust in God, and here is what they praise God for. Here's the first point, that God's house is still open for worship. That God's house is still open for worship. Look at verse 1. And again, put it in the historical context as they were using it to praise God. They've just been delivered from the dreaded Assyrians. So what's the first words of the psalm? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. They were praising Him that the house is still open for worship. The Assyrians have been defeated. You know, the Assyrian king had mocked, had defied Jehovah, the God of Judah. He wrote in his letter, trying to frighten Hezekiah this. He said, do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. As the gods of the nations of the lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? But of course, in the end, what happened? The king of Assyria was the one returning in defeat to his house 
of worship in Nineveh where he was killed by the hands of his own son while Jehovah's house remained open for worship with his sons, the sons of Judah, what? Lifting up their hands to him in praise and worship. Look at the second thing they praise God for. They praise God because God's city and God's people are still standing. Verse 2 and 3, look at it. Our feet are standing within your gates. I mean, again, put yourself in their shoes, what they had just come through, and just hear them praising. Our feet are still standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is a built as a city that is compact together. You know, that could, in the Hebrew text, that could literally be, be translated, and I like this. It could be translated, our feet have stood and are still standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. I mean, there's a, there's a confident tone there. Now think about that. Outside the gates, there's 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, corpses lying on the ground. Inside the walls, God's people are standing. Standing, praising the God who delivered them. See, this has almost that confident tone that you see in the New Testament. If God be for us, who can be against us? Uh, look at verse 4. It says, to which the tribes go up, referring to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, to which the tribes go up, even the twelve tribes of the Lord, in ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is referring, that, that ordinance, the ordinance for, uh, for Israel, is referring uh, to the ordinance of God that all the children of Israel had to travel to Jerusalem three times every year for very, very special worship celebrations. In the spring, they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Fifty days after that celebration, they would, they would go to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. And in, in the fall, there was the worship celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of, of Booths. Although the tribes were diverse... It was their worship of Jehovah, their protector and provider, which united them into one community as they came together to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what they would have been doing on this occasion. They would have been coming for one express purpose, coming to the house of the Lord to give thanks to God for His miraculous deliverance over the Assyrians. The third thing that they praise God for is that God's king is still on the throne. God's king is still on the throne. Hezekiah is alive and well. Different story ending from Sennacherib. Look at verse 5. For their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. In other words, they're praising him. The throne was still occupied by Hezekiah. One of King David's descendants, as God had promised David through the Davidic covenant. And folks, one day, and they were praising him for this, they knew one day that that throne would be occupied by the Messiah himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we're still waiting for that day. 
I mean, peace will come to this world. Peace will come to the Middle East, but it won't come until the Prince of Peace returns. The Messiah, the King of Kings, and sits on the throne in Jerusalem and rules this earth. And then look at the fourth truth that he, emphasized, that he uses his psalm. God's people still need to pray. God's people still need to pray. We can't relax, in other words. So God's house, praise Him, is still open for worship. Praise Him, God's city and people are still standing. And uh, praise Him that the God's king is still on the throne. And then, hey, God's people still need to pray. Uh, look at verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. In other words, the recognition, there's still going to be ad adversaries in the future. Again, we can't let down our guard. Uh, and I think Hezekiah had learned this lesson. Remember, we saw this. You remember after God healed him and that uh, the diplomats from the kingdom of Babylon came uh, to express their thanksgiving for his healing. And very, it, was, it, it was the most significant failure in Hezekiah's life. God gives this man a glowing recommendation in the Scripture. Matter of fact, God's Word said there was never a king in all of Israel's history that trusted God like this man did. And again, that had the zeal for the house of the Lord in worship as this man did. But on this occasion, you remember, it says he did not give benefit to God for his healing. But he exalted himself. He got eaten up with pride. And remember, he showed the Babylonians... All the riches of the temple. And you remember Isaiah the prophet rebuked him. He said, what have you done? What have you done? You know, you fear the Assyrians. But let me tell you something. In the future, it's going to be these same Babylonians that take this city. And haul that treasure off. And he was rebuked on that occasion. And in that rebuke, he repented of his sin. And I think here he realizes we need to give God the benefit, all the benefit. There's no place for arrogance, no place for us to take any credit, any glory. There's only one explanation for what happened here. God did it. And therefore, we need to continue to put our trust in him, realizing going forward, there's going to be more trouble. You, as long as you're living in this world, folks, troubles are coming. If you're not in a trouble right now, it's right around the corner. You, it's, it's inevitable. It is inescapable. That's the reality of the world in which we live. Look at verse 7. May peace be, I love this, within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. I think that's talking about as much, not so much material, but spiritual prosperity. Verse 8, for the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. And then verse 9, all of this for the sake of of the house of the Lord your God. I will seek your good. So, can you maybe understand a little bit better why he would have selected Psalm 122? Why he would have selected one of David's psalms, this particular psalm, to express their triumph, uh, or the triumph God gave them over the Assyrians. Now, applications for today as we close. And where I want to begin is where I ended last week. Uh, 
these, uh, these first two bullet points. These were both on your sermon notes last week, but I, I'd like to stress them a little bit more. Here's the first application. The prayer of faith makes a difference. The prayer of faith makes a difference. 2 Kings 19.20. This is Isaiah speaking to Hezekiah right after he has prayed to God. It's Isaiah that delivers God's message to Hezekiah. And notice the first words out of his mouth to Hezekiah. Because, circle that, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria. I have heard you. God responded to his child's prayer of faith as he placed his confidence in God in a very difficult situation. I love, let's tie this in, this, this whole uh, deliverance with Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is what? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Circle the words assurance and conviction. The word assurance is hupotasis in the Greek. And it's talking about an inner confidence that a person has in God's Word. An inner confidence that God will be true to fulfill His promises. And as a result of that, inwardly there's a present essence of a future reality. In other words, I haven't seen the fulfillment yet. The Assyrians are still outside the walls. All I can see is the mean bad guys. But I got God's promise. And God's promise gives me that inner assurance of what's going to happen going forward. And that's where we put our trust. The word conviction, it has the idea of more outward manifestation of that inward assurance. Because I do have that inward assurance... I demonstrate that by obedience, by going forward, not withering in fear, not withering in anxiety, keeping my eyes on the Lord and realizing it's just as simple. Trust and obey, trust and obey, a step at a time. Now, let me tie this in with something, again, I've often said from this pulpit, said it just two or three weeks ago. The essence of faith is this. And let's, let's put it in this situation. Here the Assyrians come. The dreaded Assyrians. And there hadn't been a people on planet earth that has come close to stopping them. And Judah by no means has the means to stop them either. Apart from some supernatural intervention. So with their physical eyes, what's all that they can see? The dreaded Assyrians the enemy. With their physical ears, what's the only thing they can hear? You remember when the king sent his emissaries to Jerusalem and gave their words of intimidation and fear? Remember, it talks about how they shouted them out in what? In the Hebrew language to try to fear to bring fear and intimidation to those inside the walls so they would put pressure on Hezekiah to cave and to surrender. 
So again, with their physical eyes, all they can see is the enemy. And an enemy that's beyond their ability to overcome. All they can hear is words of fear, words of intimidation, to capitulate, to surrender. That's what you got on one hand. And you could call that a human impossibility. And a human impossibility that's being backed up with what your eyes can see and what your ears can hear. On the other hand, the only thing I have is a promise by an old white-haired prophet. That's it. One hand, I know what I can see, I know what I can hear. And then I got this promise by this white-haired prophet, a promise from God. And folks, that's where faith comes in. What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose what your physical eyes can see and your physical ears can hear? Or are you going to choose what God said? And put your trust there. And see, that, that's what faith is. And you connect this with Hezekiah and the deliverance. He's saying, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And words, what enabled Hezekiah to trust, he believed God would fulfill his word. Therefore, if I'm putting my faith and confidence in God, I'm never without hope. I don't care how bad it is. I'm never without hope as long as I have my eyes on God. Now, I take my eyes off of God. I take them off of His promise. I put them on the enemy. I begin listening to their lies, to their deception, to their fear. Well, then I'm eating up. But as long as I keep my eyes on God, I try, I'm never without hope. And if I'm not without hope, then there's that conviction. There's that conviction to believe what my physical eyes can't see right now or my physical ears can hear. In other words, it's a conviction. It hadn't happened yet. To be honest, I don't see it starting to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. But by golly, God will be true to his word. I'm believing him. And I'm staking my life. And that's exactly what Hezekiah did. He said, I'm staking my life. I'm staking the life of this city this nation, I'm staking the Davidic covenant on this, that God will be true to all of that. And he'll do it for his glory and for his name's sake. And so, what trouble are you in right now? We're all faced with the same choice. You know what you can see with your eyes, what you're hearing with your ears. And then on this hand, you got God's word. God's truth, God's promise. And I plead with you, put your trust in God. A God who will never fail you. A God who will never forsake you. A God who will be true to His promises. And He will be faithful to you. Look at a second bullet point. The chief purpose in prayer is for God to be exalted in the answer. This is a marvelous lesson for us to learn. The chief purpose in prayer. We're talking about the, it's the prayer of 
faith that makes a difference. Not the prayer of anxiety, the prayer of faith. Faith, again, is that inner assurance, that outward conviction, because I'm focused on God, putting my trust in His Word. And the chief purpose in prayers, I pray that prayer of faith, is for God to be exalted in the answer. Again, look at the last statement in Hezekiah's prayer. This, is, this says it all right here. This tells you everything you need to know about this man and where God had brought him in terms of spiritual growth. Because you don't arrive here overnight. Let's all admit that. He says, and now, O Lord our God, I pray. Here's my prayer. This is what I'm asking you to do. Deliver us from his hand. Why? That we might escape the dreaded Assyrians. And again, there's that aspect of it. But what overrode his prayer, what his greatest passion was in his prayer, notice, Here's the reason that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou alone, O Lord, art God. In other words, Hezekiah realized more important than them escaping the Assyrians was for God in the process to be exalted. And the ultimate purpose in the answer of prayer is that in the answer, God would be put on display. How often do you pray that way? How often do I pray that way? How often do we pray that way? Often our prayers are nothing more than a panic session with God. And that's okay. Don't, don't misunderstand me now. I don't want to be too rough here on, on me, you, or any of us. We're God's children. He realizes His children are at different levels of maturity. Many of you have little children. You know how prone they are to panic and, ah! you know, uh, the sky's falling down. And they run to who? They run to mommy or daddy. And, and they want assurance. They want to know you're there and you're going to be there for them and it's going to be okay. That's fine. But may I say with all gentleness, but also with great firmness, God doesn't want to leave you there. He doesn't want you to, man he doesn't want you to stay a little kid. He wants you to grow up. He wants you to grow up to be a mature Christian that lives for His honor and His glory, that realizes, hey, the real issue in life is not me escaping trouble from my gratification. No, the issue is God's glorification. So I go to God in prayer, in life circumstances, and my passion, my pursuit. God, do this, and do this in such a way that when the answer comes, you will be glorified. There'll be no other explanation. God did it. And it draws people to God. Again, we don't get there overnight. That's a process, but realize that's where God wants to take you. Look at that third bullet point. This is a little different perspective, but it's an important point of application to make. And I make this application to our nation. The first duty and only true safety of America lies in a right relationship with God. Moral principles, get those blanks filled in, moral principles and spiritual convictions, 
Moral principles and spiritual convictions are the most important factors determining national peace and prosperity, not politics, economic policy, or military prowess. And again, we're not trying to say there's not a place for politics. We're not trying to say there's not a place for economic policy. We're not saying there's not a place for military prowess. But all we're saying is, we don't trust ultimately in those things. We trust in God and we demonstrate that trust by submitting to His Word and His moral principles, His moral absolutes. Our nation's, at last sentence, our nation's response to God will be the decisive factor in our history. It won't be how great our economy is. It won't make a difference if America is made great again. It doesn't make any difference how strong our military is. It is our nation's response to God that will ultimately determine the destiny of this country. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Psalm 33, verses 16 and 18, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear. You could say who trust Him. On those who hope, put their confidence in His loving kindness. Amen. That He'll say true. And then the, that last bullet point, and a most important one, that sort of makes an application to church life. If the Israelites were to enthusiastically go to the temple in Jerusalem, to receive and submit to God's instructions, to become unified in their worship of God and seek the peace, prosperity, and welfare of the believing community. How much more enthusiastically should we come to the local church today to do the same? And let me close with that passage, Hebrews 10. If you'd like to turn to it, fine. Hebrews 10, 19 through 27. Great way to close to, again, bring the application over to the church. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, confidence to do what? To enter the holy place. How do I have confidence as a sinner? To enter the holy place. To go into the presence of a holy God. How? By the blood of Jesus. I don't go on my merits, my righteousness. The only means I have to get into God's presence is on the basis of His blood shed for me that paid the penalty of my sin and the righteousness of Christ imputed to me to give me a right standing before God. It's all God's grace. It's all God's gift. It's all God's mercy. But because there is His grace, His mercy then there is that boldness to enter the holy place by a new, verse 20, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, talking about, remember when Christ's flesh was torn apart, that veil in the temple, what? Tore from the top to the bottom, indicated what? The way to the holy place is now open for all who put their faith in Jesus. Amen? And since, I love this, verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the, notice, house of God. In the Old Testament days, it was the temple. Today, we're the house of God. Now, I'm not talking about brick and mortar. 
When I talk about the church, I'm talking about God's people coming together. Peter talks about us being living stones that are erected to provide a holy habitation for the presence of God through which he can extend his presence in this world and express his character. That's who and what we are. Again, not brick and mortar we're talking about. We're talking about a community of believers that share faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So since we have this great high priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near. Man, come, come, come with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is what? Faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, don't miss verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully, in the, notice the word for, it's connecting it to the previous verse. If I go on sinning willfully by forsaking the assembling of God's people to worship my God, to avail the, the resources of His grace in my life, he says, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's not saying you're lost. He's not saying you lose your salvation. But he says, if you refuse to avail yourself of all that God has provided for you, what else is there but a terrifying, verse 24, expectation of judgment. In other words, chastisement, discipline, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. My, my point is, folks, realize, well, best thing you can do, come to Jonathan's series tonight. It's entitled Coming to, Coming to Church, about being the church, about the importance of being a community of believers, coming together, seeing how important this is, not being flippant about it. We, 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 should, we, should, we should long to come together. And you say, well, I don't, I don't need other people. Well, let me just put it this way. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by what? By your love for one another. You can't love as a lone ranger. You only can love in a community. You only can learn to love in a community. And yes, it provides challenge. You say, well, there's, there's some people I don't like. Well, we talked about this not too long ago. Those people are God's gift to you. To teach you to love as Jesus loved. To learn how to live in community. To learn how to find unity in the midst of diversity. To know a love greater than our differences. To learn a love that enables us to disagree without becoming disagreeable. A love that is rooted in Jesus being our first love. Where we may have differences, but the one thing that brings us together is our love for Him. And our desire that He be lifted up and receive all the glory. Amen? So as we come to our time of invitation, most of you here are believers. What trouble are you in? Man, I hope you're encouraged to put your trust in Him.